welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Investing Power Hour on Chit Chat Money number 63. No significance to that number, but we'll hit another round number at some point. We'll keep chugging along on these. My name is Brett Schaefer. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. We're doing this live on Thursday. This time we're doing 11 a.m. Pacific time. We had scheduling uh, just to change this time. Full disclosure, Ryan had a dentist appointment, so don't worry. We take care of ourselves over here. On these episodes, we talk about anything in the financial news, investing, finance stuff, interest rates, could be macro, could be micro, could be whatever. Today, we're talking about uh, Microsoft and Activision's merger. I'm looking at Ryan's other notes. He's got Kava going public. It's a restaurant concept that I'm not aware about, but I think it's popular and growing across the United States. I got an update on inflation, housing, and interest rates after the new report from the whoever does the inflation report, forget the exact name, and then the Federal Reserve's decision to pause interest rates. And I'm also, we got some extra things here about the bubble, household savings, um, the potential or the how good a you know, treasury bill could be as an investment, lots of stuff. We'll get to it. But yeah, just for reference for anyone listening, these go live on Thursdays. You can watch them on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcast of choice. They will come out every Sunday a few days later. Ryan, I always ask, how are you feeling today? We good. Uh, no cavities. It, hey, there you go. I'm, I feel like if you get a cavity after you turn 21, you need to have a mini intervention. Yeah, that's a, 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 true. A, a candy and soda intervention. Does it feel, you know, we've, uh, as, I don't know, this week, we've uh, for some strange reason, we've outperformed. And does it feel good to just have a little, a few up days for a while? Huh? <laughs> Yeah, it's like the that that meme where the person's celebrating with champagne on the podium and then they like zoom out and he's in fourth place or whatever. That's kind of what it feels like right now. But it's good to win one. Um definitely feels good. I honestly haven't even checked today. Are we doing all right? Where are you at on the uh fear and greed odometer if you had one? For me? Yeah. Uh, well, I try to be as best as possible to you know, listen to the be greedy when others are fearful. So I'm in the fear category. I think that's, uh, we're going to have a discussion after this episode about what, what our treasury strategy is going to be. So I think that kind of indicates what my thoughts are, but I, I don't, I don't see many opportunities out there for new stuff. Uh, I really like right now to not purposefully rotate over to value stuff, but maybe rotate a little bit out of growth just because the opportunity, I mean, when stuff goes up 50, 100%, I mean, the opportunity is just not as good. Yeah. And suddenly treasuries yielding five and a quarter start to look not that bad and risk-free. So it, I think it is a good point. And we, uh, I mean, I'll take one, for example, there have been a number of the companies in the portfolio where it's like, man, we're like, gosh, these are, you know, just 
they're pretty cheap and it feels like you can get a comfortable 15% IRR rate of return. But all right, let's take Dropbox, for example. We just went through and did a show on them. If you want to listen to it, go ahead, check it out. We've done it. It's it's somewhere in the probably two months old at this point, month old, maybe two months. Um, and we kind of got to the idea that, okay, 15% returns seem achievable based on fairly conservative assumptions. Um, but the stock's up 20% in the last two months, 25% maybe. So yeah, if it goes yeah, up, suddenly, if it goes up fifty percent, then the math, you know, yeah, do a little math there. What what what's my risk reward here? Are they really did they deserve to go up fifty percent? How many you know is the business even better at this point? Especially when it seems to be a big time factor bet on a lot of these things. Sometimes everything just moves in conjunction, regardless of whether the business is actually improving. But in, you know, in some instances, I think if there's a, you know, 50% move can be warranted because some sort of unlock in the business, something is way better than it was. I think it's a case by case basis, but what are your thoughts? You know, I, I'm yeah, sure you agree with that. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I don't, I feel like people are reluctant to trim. I'm kind of the opposite. I I'm happy to trim. I know it might cut some of your winners short, but if something jumps 50% in a matter of days or a matter of months, two months, it, it, the, re, the forward returns are, are less like uh, by a decent amount. So it's uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any harm in trimming or trying to reallocate to different opportunities. The other thing I wanted to ask you is if, if you're getting five and a quarter right now, risk-free five and a quarter percent rate of return with the uh, treasuries, at what um, risk on return? So call it, you know, like a if you're buying an equity and you expect it to say generate nine percent, but obviously there's risk, there's execution risk, the world could change, that kind of thing. At what percentage do you start to say, nah, I'll opt in for the five and a quarter? Yeah, and for reference, the three month treasury right now is five point two three percent, according to this link I got. On CNBC, I think it would have to be above 10%, but I think that's what we're targeting anyways, right or wrong. So what do you mean? Like my forward return rate, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're saying if it was below, you'd start to think, I don't think well. that's a, yeah. Like, a, and it kind of changes the math for when I would want to trim something because if I can, get out of something that I think either is low growth and trading at a, you know, more of a premium valuation now, then the math is a lot different than when you couldn't get any yield on treasuries, especially if you're not upset with a 5% return right now. And you wouldn't be like, yes, there's always the risk that something can run up and double, even you know, from when you sell it, that's the, the risk of selling something. But when you wouldn't be upset if a stock drops, you know, after running up 100%, typically I would say it's one of those opportunities that might be volatile in general. And there could be an opportunity to buy it 50% down because the stuff that's just historically, I think there's some stuff that's a lot more volatile than, than others. How um, long does it take to get a double on treasuries right now? What probably like uh, 13, I don't know. 14 years? Um, I can run the math, but it would be a bit annoying to do this live. And I, I would be worried about getting it wrong, but maybe yeah. we'll come back on next episode. I'll, I'll do the math for everyone. 
Yeah, it is funny. I think I feel like I'm leaning more towards fearful on that little odometer thing. And the thing I find interesting is we're at kind of peak, well, peak rates over the last what? When's the last time we've had rates this high? I would believe maybe let's let's look it up. I'm gonna look it up and share the screen. Federal Reserve discount rate chart. That's my Google search. Sorry, didn't use. Either way, in recent history, it's the highest it's ever been, and yet I feel like you're getting a much lower earnings yield on the S and P than you were a while back. So it's like, and maybe that's just kind of anchoring, but. I find it weird that with rates this high, price on equities is, is continues to run up. Yeah, you know, because I remember, I remember you posed the question. You were like, I think it was when we were in the zero interest rate environment. You're like, would people really start opting in for bonds or treasuries if the yield was four percent? And everyone was like, eh, kind of maybe. And now it's like five percent. You start. I mean, I, I'm doing it. We're well, doing yeah, it right they, now. Yeah, it's and, worth it, you know? Yeah, but here's here's the thing. So let me, I'll share the screen. Actually, let me give you access just in case you want to do it later. Share the screen, describe it here. One, it's obviously, we all know this at this point, it's been the most aggressive hiking in history. But if we look back, it's kind of where it was in late 2006. And it's kind of where it was for a lot of the time during the 90s, which again is when a bubble occurred. I also want to look at... Okay, Zoom really needs to fix where they put their screen sharing thing because it always pops up and it makes it so you can't on Chrome uh, type in something new. Okay. I want to look up the PE ratio of the S&P 500. We're at 25.5. Call it 25. And that's just, I believe, just trailing. No Cape, no Schiller, no whatever. 25.5. Okay, say it's 25, invert that, one divided by 25, that's a 4% yield. So you're getting a, you know, the yield on the S&P 500 is less than treasuries. I think that that's going to make me fearful. Now, obviously, I, the expectation is that earnings grow, you know. I, I mean, I guess that's what's getting priced in right now, but... Yeah, and every individual stock is different, and I'm sure everyone has the same take as me, where I'm like, no, my stocks are going to grow, but it does make me a little bit more nervous and want to target, say, something in the value camp at this point, when in late 2022, even though it felt shitty, you're, my, you knew it was right to go after more growth of your stuff, even though if it was a harder, you had to plug your nose a bit if you did it. Yeah, and you might have to, you know endure another 50% drawdown because there was really no bottom to a lot of the growthier unprofitable tech, despite, you know, some of them maybe having uh, real futures. But um, anyway, that's our macro talk or part of our macro talk. Yeah. Why don't you go into your topic? What do you want to hit first? I guess do whatever you want. Yeah. Not the newsiest week, to be honest, the, uh, I guess there's more Microsoft Activision drama. So apparently this week, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, asked U.S. courts to stop 
Microsoft from acquiring Activision Blizzard while the government's bigger case to block the merger plays out. Um, apparently, I believe they call this a preliminary injunction. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, preliminary injunction. And, you know, a part of me is going through this for the first time. We no longer own Microsoft. We never, we, we never owned Microsoft. We no longer own Activision. Um, but the, uh, we did it one time and I, you're kind of, we're, we're going through it and thinking about like from the FTC's point of view. And we, we don't understand the process very intimately, but it still feels, we understood kind of their their justification for why they were trying to block it, and we thought it was wrong. But the uh, it, this article says both a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction are necessary because Microsoft and Activision have represented that they may consummate the proposed acquisition at any time. I believe that would mean they're doing it without doing so in the UK, right? It's yeah, saying I guess. That they could just without UK approval. Um, but, you know, that, that would be a significant loss probably for both businesses or something like that. So um, basically this is just a further push to stop the deal. Interesting kind of background on Activision, Diablo 4, which has been this long awaited uh, AAA game, kind of a console, eh, console and desktop, right? That's kind of where they dominate. Yeah, over five years in development. Yeah, they... Uh, it came out this week and it crossed 666 million in sales within the first week. The reason they use that figure is 666, kind of the, the devil. And that's kind of what the game's based around. It's very like dark kind of. You're in hell. Uh, You're literally in hell. That's the yeah. game. Right. Um, but that is a huge, uh, that's a huge number. The stock's up a little bit. Activision now trades at $81. It's 18.5% away from the acquisition price. Basically, the market is saying, there's very little chance this goes through. So if you're buying here, you're buying specifically to own Activision as a standalone business, right? Isn't that how you think about it? I'd probably think so. And I think a lot of people aren't really betting on that, the acquisition to go through, but I think they are betting on getting that $3 billion breakup fee from Microsoft. It seems like Microsoft has now, maybe they were looking for regulators to be a bit more rational, but they seem to have bungled, bungled this a lot. I know there are a lot of Microsoft shareholders out there that wouldn't be upset if the deal didn't go through, but it is a waste of $3 billion. Kind of pennies to them, but still. Activision, though, yeah, it's driven by Call of Duty. Yeah, it's, you know, it's driven by Candy Crush a bit, but yeah, the majority is Call of Duty, and that's Call of Duty Warzone, the premium game, and Call of Duty Mobile, and that's for their business i believe what are we at like it's it's typically around eight to nine billion dollars in revenue a year this diablo first week or say first few quarters after launch will be a nice little bump for them in the near term but it's not going to be a game changer for the financials i think the key and this is what they discussed is making it more of a live services offering after launch so they have these really in-depth campaigns and stuff like that you know, and it's a great story and, and people buy the the premium game to play this story. It's a well-loved franchise. The, the the last ones have sold a lot. This one seems to be the best-selling game in Blizzard history. But the key financially for Activision is to make it a four to five year or longer live services game with add-on content, bonus stuff that they have. They say is coming down the line. They say they prepped years to make. And if that happens and they can bump, say, this to a billion dollar seller every year, if you include live services, yeah, they can meaningfully affect 
Activision's financials, and they can probably hit that $3 billion cash flow target that they've been targeting. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, I think it's... But that's one of those ones that that's one of those with it's it's I feel like it's lower growth and I think it's a durable. I think the brands are durable and I think that stuff with the, um, you know, the workplace culture stuff was terrible, but it looks like they're slowly getting better with that. And it's still a problem. But I think the biggest indication that things are getting better on that front is that they're rolling out games on, you know, there's less delays. That yeah. you know, you're not seeing the vol- voluntary resignations, people trying to leave, people uh, because obviously that slows game development. You're seeing them kind of hit that regular cadence. And so I think that's probably proof that things are getting better. Yeah. And unless you really trust some sort of you know, you know, you think the management team is a Berkshire-esque capital allocation savants out there. If a stock right now is trading at 15 to 20 times earnings, I guess maybe closer to 20 times and it's low growth, or you kind of think it's, you know, growth is not going to be a big factor in uh, for earnings. I don't know why I would want to own it right now. Activision? Yeah, Activision. I'm saying that as an example of that scenario that basically describes Activision, at least in my mind. Some people might be more optimistic on the future earnings, but... Yeah, and the yeah. other thing that I'm... We've owned Activision. We have kind of a long history of ownership with them. Uh, well, not really that long, but basically we rode them down, sold at the worst possible time, buyout rumors, got boosted the stock, bought it, kind of broke even on the merger R, but I think we lost like 1% after the UK deal broke um, or after the UK uh, filed to stop the merger. Uh I have found that the worst time to buy Activision is right after a big game launch. Like, uh, like they they have a ton of success with one one hit game, um, and I think the stock jumped a little bit because of uh, Diablo 4's success. I feel like it's better because these are longstanding franchises to do it when to to acquire shares when it's trading at it. Um, when they announce the date and you, you're confident that it's going to be like they announced the release date right. and you're confident. I mean, same thing with Nintendo. When it's right, Zelda. not right after a hit game. Like no, it's when not they're when they, kind not of when in they the trough were... of the development cycle. Yeah. And it would have been, say, six months ago for both Nintendo and Activision, where you know the game's coming out. You know that these are guaranteed sellers. We're talking Zelda and Diablo. Diablo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a much better time, at least to think about it. Because typically, historically, yeah, I, I think a lot of, if you follow the gaming industry closely, a lot of investors on Wall Street are not really following it as closely. And there can be some opportunities for, I mean, it's usually not fantastic, but yeah, could be present buying opportunities if you like the long-term prospects. We do have two questions if we're gonna tr- before we transition to another topic. First one from, uh, this is a funny name, Mr. Dapper Capper. Thoughts on the drawdown in healthcare insurance stocks? Is CVS looking like a good risk return from here? We do not know anything about health insurance. I'd say we don't know much about insurance in general, but health insurance would be the the least. I know a little bit about car insurance, a little bit about home insurance, but even those, I, I don't think I can say much. But what I've been seeing in the news is that, you know, costs for a lot of these companies, insurance in general, have been going up. We saw the two companies in California kind of get out of the market. So I think. People are worried a bit about that in general. 
Um, there's a lot of uncertainty now. I think there's a narrative out there about, you know, it was Empic and all those things. So I don't know if it's a good risk return from here, but if you like the companies, yeah, I mean, if they're down because of some narrative, I, 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 I'm not going to be able to tell you whether it's a good buy though. Yeah. I'm with Brett. I have absolutely zero idea. I'm looking at CVS right now, $20 billion in operating cash flow, kind of 18, $17 billion in free cash flow enterprise value of 148 billion. So seven, eight times free cash flow. I, I mean, I don't know. Who is that CVS? Yeah. I mean, the free cash flow looks pretty durable. Yeah. I mean, it's a bargain, I guess, if if you think free cash flow is going upward from here. Or if it's just the same. Here's Yeah, but here's the next question. Uh, Mark from Scotland says he appreciates the show. Thank you, Mark, for listening and tuning in. Here's a famous hypothetical question. If you can only buy one stock from the Arch portfolio for the next year, what would it be? I think if I was 100% one stock, and I hope this is what the question would be. Uh, look, I'm always going to say the conglomerate we own, which is Nelnet, because that's very diversified. We trust the management. It's the management team I trust the most in the world. Um, but in regards to what I'm most bullish on in the near term, I think that's gonna that's really hard to predict. And I think that's all based on feeling. If you would have told me three months ago, like what stock I was least bullish on in the portfolio, it would have been Dropbox because I was worried about small business recession and all that sort of deal. And they've actually been the best performer probably since then. So I don't think you should base it off that. But if I was going to say today, like my favorite one is probably Match Group uh, has the most upside in the near term. But again, you should probably fade that because, again, whenever I have these feelings. We're all time bad at short term. Yeah. Whenever we have these feelings or whenever I have these feelings about what something's going to do in the next two, three quarters. um, Yeah, I don't. It doesn't usually work out, but if I had to cop out and have a real answer, I would say now that I'm curious what your takes are, Ryan, because, and again, this is nowhere near how we invest. So, you know, yeah, we usually no, invest I, on at least on a three-term, three-year horizon. I like the, uh, I like the question. And it's interesting because Nelnet is probably a safer bet, but I'm probably going to own, barring any massive change in uh, management and capital allocation strategy. I'm probably going to own Nelnet for a long time, and I don't really care what happens over the next year. And I don't see any like huge catalysts coming that are going to like make it some incredible performer. There are, I think, a couple of companies in our portfolio where it's like there's these big lingering problems right now that are kind of hovering over the stock and and people are kind of uh, worried about buying it let's i mean ally financial is kind of the one that comes to mind the the loan book on uh i mean they're one of the biggest auto lenders subprime i believe uh one, they're they're one of the biggest subprime auto lenders right in the US who sorry who say that ally again. yeah yeah they are uh, but they do it depends they are focusing they more yeah, yeah they are focusing more i guess on on prime but Whatever. I'm fo- yeah, I'm I'm trying to I, I don't know if they're the largest, but they offer a lot of prime and subprime and, and different financing basically around the auto market. And so um there's been a lot of questions around that, especially because used car prices got so elevated kind of over the last 
three years that people are concerned that used car prices are going to come back down. They have to repossess the cars. They're going to have to sell them at a significant loss, that kind of thing. So that's the lingering concern, but the actual bank itself seems to just continue to attract more and more depositors. Um, and so it seems it, it's kind of, it feels like a really good bank on that side. Um, and it's online only. So it's able to offer a higher rate to a lot of the customers than a lot of the kind of brick and mortar type branches or the physical branch bank. So I, I like that side. And if they're able to kind of thread the needle on this, on their uh, loan portfolio and kind of make it through because obviously the rate rate hike has hurt them. Um, it feels like that is probably the one with the most upside, I imagine, in our portfolio in the short term. But like I said, and like Brett said, that isn't how we invest and we're not shaping the portfolio around that. I'd say that's also one of the higher risk companies in our portfolio. Usually so, the more, yeah, usually, yeah, it's the, the higher opportunity in the short term does come with more risk for downside in the short term as well. And I mean, you can check out our uh, portfolio allocation online. It's archcapitalfund.com. Yeah, you can see everything there. Nelnet is our largest holding. I think it's 15% of the fund today. So like, uh, I think we're we're speaking the truth when we say uh, we invest for the long-term. I think our money's kind of where our mouth is when it comes to that, because that's probably the one we have the best outlook for over you know three to five years. So we have a lot more questions this year questions in here you want to take any of these brett yeah i was typing in response to the uh nintendo ones but we have a question here about industrials says industrial setup here looks compelling pmi seem to be bottoming um i would reference last week we did talk about that chart of of industrial manufacturing spending just blowing out to the you know upside uh it's, it's just getting way larger as a percentage for the entire u.s economy uh, the question is, have you guys looked at any industrials or interested in any? Um, we have not, but we probably should do that for a theme for a not-so-deep-dive month. I don't know the sector very well, but I would like to know it more. I generally like asset light businesses, typically, as those are generally, and not all the time, generally the ones that can lead to you know, some of the best business models out there, or, you know, over the long term that can lead to the best stock performance over the long term. But there have been, you know, some strong performing industrials as well. But I, I don't know it too well. Ryan, have you looked at any of these recently? I would exclude airlines. I kind of look at um, airlines. I would separate that. I'd like, I like to follow that industry because it seems sometimes there can be some extremely cheap stocks out there. Yeah, no, I don't follow it that closely. I I kind of just vaguely follow one general contractor called Mostech. Um, just because you know someone, right? Yeah. And then I, there's a lot of stuff that we own that's kind of tangential to the manufacturing industry. So Autodesk, Procore, those are both software providers that we benefit don't, well, from. We don't own Procore to be. Don't own we, Procore. We, fo- we follow the, it. Yeah, follow it. Um, those are two that benefit from increased spending in the manufacturing sector and for industrial companies largely. So, and it takes a while to trickle through, but we kind of have some exposure to the industry that way. We just, I don't know. I don't think we've ever been great at following the industrials and it really is all those feel like they have a lot of cyclicality and a lot of bumpiness in their earnings. 
Yeah. And there's some factors that can come in like commodity prices, you know, their input prices, energy prices that can affect them. I like looking at whether right or wrong, because sometimes these stocks can trade at premium valuations. Autodesk, good example, hasn't been a big winner for us and has been a slight loser, I'd, I'd say, versus the market. I much rather would look at software companies that serve construction, software companies that serve engineers, software companies that serve the manufacturing um, space, because I think those can be fantastic businesses with high switching costs, especially as we move... And it's one of those where I think the tailwind of digitization is going to be durable for multiple decades, unlike, say, the adoption of some consumer internet thing that's really easy for anyone to switch into. These ones take time, and I just think it's a great hunting ground, although typically these stocks can trade at premium valuations, but they're, they're ones that I have on the watch list. For example, Ansys is simulation leader, uh, you know, Aerospace companies use them. A lot of other companies use them. For example, Formula One teams use them for simulation software. That's always traded at a premium valuation. And I think it's one that's on my watch list as a key. Like if we go into a prolonged 0809 type drawdown, that's one that I would want to buy if earnings multiples across the board totally collapsed. Yeah. It's, we actually did a whole engineering software month where we looked at basically all those businesses, Ansys, Dassault Systems, Autodesk. Who else was in there? PTC, Bentley Systems. They're all they're all they're all good businesses. They typically trade at premium multiples with high switching costs. Yeah, so that was really the big theme that we saw was once a company uses these on a regular basis and across the entire organization or all their engineers do or whatever it's hard to switch. Yeah. And they're ones that I would love to get at the right price, but it's a classic example. I think of our strategy that we're trying to be a little bit more disciplined on price, because again, we've talked about on the show or just in general, how our biggest mistakes have been not being price disciplined. And I think you got to be okay. If you like these type of businesses, even those industrials as well and say, Hey, look, I'm going to keep it on the watch list. If it hits the price that we think makes sense, we'll buy. But if it doesn't, it might sit on there for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, you think about some companies, you go back to like Buffett and think about how long he waited on certain companies. There was situations where he would read their annual reports for more than a decade because it just simply wasn't the right price. It wasn't in his... uh, whatever it wasn't in the strike zone to swing at. And then he finally got it at a good price and the returns were still good from there. So if you're, if you're right about the long-term projections of the business, you can wait, you can afford to wait uh, for a proper yeah. valuation. Big deal. <laughs> I think if you miss the, it. Yeah. And the big thing I think for everyone else is position sizing probably shouldn't be as aggressive as Buffett, but oh, yeah, everything else. Yeah. He's a, uh, you know, he's a little better. Let's go to the and next everyone, topic, though. Yes. Uh, Kaba. What do you, what are you hit on this? Uh, yeah, you what, ever, what even is this Kaba? No, but it sounds like somebody I'd like. Is it, is it in? Do we have any in Seattle? I don't know about Seattle. I don't think so. Check, check right now. I, I, I think there's Maps. only like, yeah. there's only 18 stores in the West, which is the geography that they define. So I imagine a lot of them are in California. Um, but it's 
basically a fast casual yeah, Mediterranean all, restaurant all, concept. All kind SoCal. Of, oh yeah. Okay. So it's kind of, um, I know every fast casual concept gets this designation, but it's a bit of a Chipotle for Mediterranean oh, yeah. food. <laughs> hundred times uh, earnings. Let's put it, let's give it a hundred times earnings already. All right. I, I'm sold. There's 263 stores across the country today versus 89 stores in 2019. So it's grown quickly. Um, the average unit volume or the average revenue per store uh, each year is $2.4 million. So I think that's kind of average in terms of AUVs. I think the largest one we've ever seen was that like hot dog place. You know, remember what I'm talking about? Portillo's. Yep. Portillo's. Yeah. They had probably the highest average unit value of uh, we've ever seen. So we're at Um, 2.4 million. Yeah. I mean, I think Chipotle's at about three. So maybe they have a little bit room to grow that. Yeah, they did uh, five hundred sixty-four million dollars in revenue last year. Seventeen percent gross margins, negative operating income. They're looking to raise, I think, just over three hundred million dollars in their IPO. They IPO'd this morning, so let me check this real quick. Kava stock. Come on, Google. Don't do me. According to according to the New York Post, which is, as we all know, the best source for financial information. It soared in its stock market debut and hit a $4.7 billion valuation on $564 million in revenue. I mean, wow. Yeah, it was up. I mean, yeah. So they priced it at $22. I believe that was the original. No. And this is classic. They always go, we're going to aim to price it at 16 Then like a day before, they're going, actually, we're going to up the price to 22 We feel like there's a lot of demand. Um, but it... I don't know. It worked. First of all, I think the IPO system is just broken, but, um, well, it's broken up 112% (laughs) in, in, during, during their first trading day. So I think it's at like 40, I saw someone said it was at $40. So yeah, it, I think we're back. The bubble's officially back, right? Yeah, it is. Yes. hundred percent as an IAC bag holder, I'm begging Turo to go public. Um, I know that sounds desperate, but I am. I'm looking at your numbers here, though. I haven't read the S1. Don't think I'm gonna, uh, just because of the price right now, but maybe at some point. The gross margins on Kava here are 17%, you have? Mm-hmm. And they're probably still trying to scale. Feels a little bit uh, sweet, sweet greeny. We talked about that. Where yeah, they're not, not losing not the- nearly as much money, but... Yeah, yeah, but it seems like they're a bit of aggressive on their cost structure. But I'm seeing about $4.7 billion market cap. I'm sure EV's a little bit lower, but they are losing money. So maybe we'll just use that. Let's say $5 billion market cap, $560 million in revenue. We're getting close to 10 times sales. And a company like this is probably not going to do much more than 10% profit margins. So we're looking at 100 times earnings. Um, 10%, 10% optimistic. So yeah, 100 times. At least, well, at least in the near earnings. term. As they scale, you could probably see them getting closer to Chipotle at 15%, but after tax, they'll be you know less. And that is many, many years from now. Yeah, I don't see how... It, this re- reminds me of you know like 2020, 2021, when companies were going public with just the most atrocious unit economics. But... I'm going to pull up the SPAC list. Do you want to see that? That'll surprise you, even though you were, you keep going. I'm going to... The, um, it's, 
I, I just have a hard time getting comfortable with these retail concepts, especially paying a premium for these retail concepts. I don't know how you own something like this where it's trading at 100 times theoretical profits because it's not, you know, they, they aren't profitable. An unprofitable retail concept where they're kind of spinning off their like, uh, or they're spitting out their adjusted margins, like their store level operating margins, kind of stuff like that, where it doesn't really like, it's, it's it doesn't useful. matter for shareholders. Yeah, it's a useful input for shareholders, but again, that's not actually what they're taking home uh, in in earnings. Correct. So I just don't see how you get comfortable and own something like that because you got to be able to assume that they can turn the corner to profitability, and you have to be able to assume that they can just endlessly grow store count, which it's usually hit or miss depending on different markets. So it's like. I feel like a lot of the people that end up buying like Kava or Sweet Green or Allbirds, if you want to call them retail, um, are just yeah. like avid customers. They're like, oh yeah, I really like the product. So I'll buy shares. Like, I go there every day. I don't see yeah. how you look at it and think like, yeah, I, I can own this based on any sort of valuation work. Yeah. The Chipotle one. I mean, yeah, Kava does have potential. Seems like you know, there's there's opportunity for Mediterranean out there, but at least in the neighborhood I live, there's a lot of Mediterranean places that are not expensive and I'd rather go to. They all have digital ordering now. It's not like there's any sort of advantage. And yeah, but whatever, besides this besides the point. I think Chipotle is sort of like the Amazon where people go, it's the you know, it's the it's the Chipotle of X. It's the Chipotle of whatever. It's the Chipotle of Mediterranean. It can be dangerous when a theme goes like that. I think Chipotle was one of those where it's like, yeah, I like the concept and it did scale across the country. But that doesn't mean everything will. There are a lot of concepts out there that don't scale to every geography like Ryan mentioned. And until like it's proven, like in Chipotle's case, I don't think you can bet on, hey, they're going to get 5,000 locations across the country. Very, very few. Um, Dutch Bros is another one. Yeah, who knows? It seems like they're making. Is good that going to land but, in Alabama? Well, maybe. Um, but they, they seem to be doing pretty well. But again, they're inching their way across the U.S. and TBD. If their average unit volumes are going to be the same, you mentioned the IPO market and how it feels a bit like 2021. I did have a. There was a tweet from someone. I believe it was Deep Sale Capital. If you're on Twitter, follow him. Fantastic. We've had him on the show before. Really, really good at looking at small caps, long and short. Whenever he posts, I he posts a lot of short lists, and I'm always like, okay, hopefully none of my stocks are on there. <laughs> it's always a good filter, I guess, because he's really good at finding those, or basically, you know, bad companies that might be overvalued. But people have been talking about how it feels like 2021 again. We have one IPO that seems to be doing extremely well. I want you to guess how many SPACs. Uh, IPOs were formed in the United States in the year 2021. SPACs or IPOs? SPAC or SPACs and? Just SPACs. It's a SPAC, SPACs. a SPAC IPO, right? Not, yeah. Oh, how many SPACs were formed? Okay, here's, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what the chart is so you can get the full information. Number of special purpose acquisition company okay. IPOs in the United States. Okay. And the chart is 2003 to 2023, but I want you to do... Guess 2021. Okay. I'm going to go with 370. 
All right, let me share the screen. Oh, whoops. The anticipation is building. What's it say? The answer is 613. Almost two per day in the year 2021. 2022, only 86. Year to date, 2023, 14. Highest year any year besides 2020 and 2021 was 66 in 2007. I think we're getting a little bubbly here, but this is nowhere. And maybe it's the same sort of bubbly territory in the mega cap land. We're nowhere near mid cap, growthy, unprofitable. So we're nowhere near 2021 yet. Yeah, that's uh, certainly accurate. Can't believe everyone was drinking the Kool Aid, man. And you know what? Okay. It, Dude, I remember talked to so much. How everyone to... was talking about how like SPACs were better for us. Yeah, they're was, better was, for us because they finally give like retail investors a chance to like get in on the private companies. I know. Okay, maybe. It, it, I, I think it gave everyone a chance to get in on people trying to dump the bag. Yeah, just because uh, there's some sort of psychological brainwashing that people have done that just because a company is private, just because it's a startup from Silicon Valley makes it a good company. Yeah, I mean, the majority, I bet the lion's share of public companies are a lot better than lion's share of private companies. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the psychology among individuals is so different. I've talked to numerous people that aren't really in the investing world because we kind of know the people that, you know, maybe on Twitter or whatever we've had on the show before that actually care about investing. It's a super big hobby like ourselves. I talked to people where it was more of a side thing during the pandemic. And every time they say, man, I got a little carried away, but now I'm good. I'm just investing in index funds or something along that line. They're not back. They are not back in this thing. They're still scared, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit of a healthier IPO market now. The uh, for sure, for sure. Gosh, some of those specs, man. You remember how like they didn't? They could just put whatever forecast they wanted. Oh, that's great stuff. Remember that's insane. Quantumscape, yeah. Uh, I remember that. That was a great name, Quantumscape, right? I just think about that one. That that was the peak name of something. Yeah, and putting whatever they wanted. I remember who was it? Oh man, the tomato company was all time bad. We're <laughs> yeah. we're gonna produce. We're gonna do ver. Okay, we have one warehouse that makes tomatoes indoors. We're gonna disrupt the entire farming industry. Yeah, berries. That's our that's our next tam. We got Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg. Uh, here's a good question. Do you guys plan on looking at Pfizer, which is a payments processor for your payments month? While expensive, it is a great business. Enjoy the MasterCard pod. By the way, if anyone doesn't know who's listening now, MasterCard pod should be in your feed interview with Matt Cochran, a payments expert who works over at 7investing. We do not have Pfizer on the list. I got to say, we typically try to go for stuff that's more eye-catching for people. And I know that Pfizer is a really good business and has been a very interesting one to cover. Um, you know what we could but do? But we kind of leave that for, you know, writers and stuff like that. Because when we do the pod, we kinda, we're kind of looking for something that may be a broad audience. But I know it's a good business and I know it's interesting. And I know they're the one with Clover, Clover correct? I believe is so. That, is that correct? Yeah, but there's, there's so. FIS and Pfizer. It gets confusing. You know what we could do is... Jacob Franklin, a friend of the show, I believe knows the Pfizer vis- Pfizer business quite well. Maybe we could try to have him on again. 
at some point. So yeah, Jacob, if you're listening, feel free to uh, shoot us a message and we can uh, schedule the time. But uh, the other thing I'll say is Matt Cochran knows payments a hell of a lot better than we do. So don't expect, uh, even if we talked about Pfizer, I feel like those are the kind of companies where we want to do it justice just because we don't know the landscape quite as well as and a lot we, of the interviewees. Yeah. And when we do a not so deep dive company, for example, this week we're doing bill.com and I guess it has acquired a company, but we try to do something that's not a, I don't know if I describe Pfizer as this, but like a roll up or a hodgepodge. something with like eight or 10 products, because that's really, really hard to cover within a week. And we try to go for stuff that's less complicated. And part of the reason we do the not so deep dive shows is I'd say one of the largest reasons aside from trying to entertain people is to look at something where we think like it's something we honestly don't know a lot about kind of the first layer of research. Could this be something that we one day own and Pfizer, you know, not to say we could never own it, but we have, I've looked at it at least like just from a, a distance kind of read some articles and thought it might be outside my circle of competence. Yeah, it's fair. But I, I still think we could do an interview on that for sure. I think uh, multiple people are interested in that company. Clover seems like a good business. But again, I haven't looked at it uh, lately. Now, want to go to the next topic, Brian, which is the fun one, the one we got to put in the title to get to get new listeners, which is Bed housing. Talk. And, yeah, housing, inflation, and interest rates update. Well, housing, I guess we get updates on that kind of every month or really every week if you kind of look at different data sources. But we got big updates on inflation and interest rates. The big news from the Fed was that they paused their rate hikes. They're keeping rates at around 5%. Remember, it's kind of a range, but I think for anyone that cares about this stuff, just think 5% right now. And then the day before, an inflation report came out. Um, I think the big takeaways from that were that inflation came down again, but that shelter, food, and automotive prices are what are driving inflation at the moment. Here's a quote from the report. The shelter index was the largest factor in the monthly increase in the index for all items, less food and energy. So when they separate out food and energy, which are pretty volatile and can change month to month, they like to look at that, what's called core inflation, which can be something that maybe shows a longer term trend in services or you know, something that's driven by... Um, you know, company psychology, consumer psychology, which, you know, on, on the other hand, energy, a lot of the time is just driven on supply and demand. And you could get, get a big shock with something like Russia and Ukraine, or you get a big shock with, you know, Saudi Arabia could just say, hey, we're going to do something different here. And, you know, then that might be different than the long-term trend. But again, seems like shelter, food, automotive prices are driving inflation. If we're looking at X, food and energy, it is shelter and automotive prices. But I think people need to remember here are the legs, which Ryan, we've talked about this before, right? How they're not looking at, say, last month, they're looking at, and the calculations are, I think, more complicated than this, like, uh, you know, the past year of data or the past six months of data in some cases. But either way, they're not looking at, okay, what are prices, you know, right now for shelter? And if we look at the say indexes or you know analysts that track some of these things it looks like the real time prices or stuff that's closer to you know now 
it seems like we're getting a little bit more disinflation. So if we look at the Mainheim used car index, um, maybe I'll share the screen. And yeah, it's a lot. It's it's a it's a lot of words to talk about. So used car prices fell to start really 2022, but in 2023 they did start to rise again, which I think is getting reflected in inflation at the moment. But through May they have started to drop again. So that's going to be a disinflationary, you know, deflationary impact that comes through over the next few quarters if this continues. And then if we look at the, let's see, we got a Redfin report here that rents have, let's see, nationwide rents declined 1% from a year earlier in May. So let's shoot for more. Yeah. Sorry to all the landlords out there, but you've had your time. The time of the you've landlord. Had, you've had your decade. You've had your century. The time of the landlord is over. Um, yeah. Now, here's first question I want to maybe ask you. I guess just any general thoughts before I move on to any of the discussion questions before we close things out here. No. Uh, I kind of like... I think I like rates at 5%. I think one one thing I wanted to say is it's fun to actually watch these meetings sometimes because there's so much hubbub made and kind of talk about Jerome Powell that it, it, you start to believe he's kind of someone who he isn't. And when you actually watch, you start to think, okay, you know what? This is a competent individual that did a pretty damn good job. Um, and uh, I mean, the team, uh, the Fed as a whole did a good job managing through COVID. I think we can look back and say that with like certainty now, right? Are, are you, yes, yes, yeah. Are you team soft landing then? I know that's a, that, haven't that's we slow, a, aren't we slowly getting there? Right. I feel like this is a soft landing at this point, but a soft landing can turn into a hard landing. Yeah, True, but I feel like a few quarters from now, so it's a dangerous take to have. People talk about at least okay, I'd say six months ago, people were talking about inflation nonstop, like not even investors. I mean, like you were seeing I mean, you it could with, see it and you'd see it across the board, no surprise. Yeah, I think there's I don't see that anymore in like you know, I'm not when I go to the grocery store, I'm not going, oh my gosh, every time now. So uh, it feels like anecdotally it's come down a little bit. We've seen the data. Obviously, a lot of the data is sometimes flawed, or there's different, you know, uh, one-time bumps that can affect things. But as for the perfect, infl- yeah. I, I don't know. I like having rates at five percent because it gives people a real alternative to equities. So, yeah, hundred percent, and it, it creates actually like. When there's 0% interest rates, it's not like, it's like interest rates don't exist. It's like they don't exist. It's like lending doesn't exist. And, and that's not actually true, but you kind of get what I mean there, where when it's 5%- It feels harder to value things. The, the, the process of how the credit-based economy is supposed to work is, how, it's working how it's supposed to work when you have rates that are in the 3 to 5% range. The other question I want to ask is that housing is still up. We've seen it. Still staying high. We talked, you know, rent, I guess, is kind of coming down and breaking, but housing's still high, especially affordability, which is factored into the um, inflation a bit. Again, it's complicated. Won't go through all the math here. I don't know all the math that they do here, 
But what do you think about how a pause in interest rates affect the housing market? And what if rates, say, don't rise anymore, or maybe they rise by 25 basis points and it doesn't really matter, but they don't go down for a full year? Do we finally see... Because can here's my question: Can the housing market freeze forever? Like, is it going to just tighten it right with these? I high think it's going rates? to look. It's going to look like a slow plane crash. I think it can. I think uh, the number of transactions across the housing sector can be significantly lower than they were two years ago for a long time, because you got a lot of homeowners that are not looking that maybe they're 15 years into a 30 year mortgage. Yeah, it's and rational. Yeah. And they're saying, why would I go out and try to buy a new home at and and take on a new mortgage at 7% when I've refinanced mine to two or three? I mean, that's that's a part of the structure of a 30-year mortgage-based housing market. Like you're gonna have in times where rates go up, there's obviously gonna be less movement. Um my thing when I think about housing. It feels like there's still, it's so convoluted and uh, we've been on the housing can't stay this high forever kind of camp. I say technically we've been right, but not as right as we thought. Not as right. Yeah, it's gone down a little bit, but not, yeah. I mean, it sucks for the new home buyer, but for the existing home buyers, it doesn't matter. The Or for the existing homeowners, it doesn't matter. Um, But I still stand by the fact that there's three factors that matter. Median home price or average home price in the US, median income, and the mortgage rate. That's all that's going to determine, right? Who can afford a home and how many people can afford a home. But then I started to think everyone talks about the housing shortage. Maybe the median income earner doesn't matter because maybe home builders just are selling to the more affluent. Yeah, I guess I don't know the date on that. Maybe there's just going to be less people that can afford a home. Maybe, and maybe the median homeowner is going to put more of their income into their home. I don't think that would be the worst outcome, but obviously we don't, you know, it doesn't seem like you kind of don't want someone spending so much on their home. Here's what I think is going to be, or finish your thought. If the home builders, let's say they've been selling their average home for $410,000 or something like that, $400,000. If they're getting that bid just from a you know from the upper middle class, there's no reason for them to take it down and kind of go down market if they're going to keep getting that and they think they can get steady margins there. Like they don't need to produce more homes and try to sell to the lower yeah. demographic, right? I think that can work for a time, but eventually you're a little you're playing a little bit of a risky game in that regard, right? Let them be renters. I know, but That's what again, it feels like. again, again, I think that some of that the rent, you know, rental costs do. If rental prices come down and stuff like that, um, it can factor into the equation or how many people you know are willing to make the leap into home ownership. If that uh, the spread between renting and home owning is so wide, right? I think the big question for me, and I'm not sure what, how this is going to happen because it seems like the you know the housing market has been very very immune. Is the record works in progress under construction right now? That's going to come online, depending on supply shortages, right? Within the next few quarters. I wonder how that's going to affect things. If it does, because it seems like it's having an effect already, you know, but slowly. But once that, you know, gets blown through, I wonder how that's going to 
yeah um if it's going to do anything to accelerate or or not just these, uh, the, these declines yeah. increase the supply maybe yeah it's it just feels so unpredictable oh it i keep coming back to the fact that affordability for the median income earner is the most important thing and it's and record it's high really, or record yeah. or record worst or whatever you describe. I mean, here's what I know for a fact is I'm affordability not is at a record low. <laughs> yeah. I think I don't want to say record low because I think it's come down a little bit to like, it was right before 08, I think was worst or maybe like right at the peak of 08 because. Oh, six. You mean, but yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. They stopped giving out the, uh, what do they call them? Ninjas. The ninjas. Ninja loans. No adjustable no rate and the adjustable rate ninjas. The yeah, I know personally it feels I'd be I'm nervous about taking any leap into home ownership right now, especially because like look, you have a mortgage rate at seven percent, you plus the down payment. Are you confident with them, like that you can out like the the reason you take on the debt is because you think it's a great way to you know delay your payments and you can earn if it's all based on investing, right? The reason you do it is because you can delay the payments of cash, right? But if you're paying 7% versus three, you have to earn a lot higher in your savings or your investments. And yeah, I can put into treasuries a five, but that's not beating my 7% mortgage. And can I beat that in investing? Can I be higher at 7% right now in investing with the market trading at an earnings yield of 4%? I think the math doesn't, it doesn't make much sense to me right now. I got a feeling most people are not thinking the way you're thinking when they buy a home. The, I think we, we spoke with Jacob Franklin this week, and he raised a good point. He said, there is no better debt in the world. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe there's something out there, but there's no better debt in the world than the mortgage in the U S because you're getting, first of all, just a, just a con as the structure the concept. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're borrowing 30 years into your future. I mean, how many companies can do that? You're locked in your rate's not going to go up. It can only go down if you want to refinance, assuming it's the fixed rate 30 year. Like that's a wonderful concept. So I guess it's not all that surprising that home prices continue to just balloon. Yeah. Um, I worry about taking a good idea. You know, good ideas are what people get into trouble though. What get people into trouble? True. That is true. But I, I, it also keeps people in place, I imagine. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. There's also going to be a whole lot of in, uh, inherited homes off That's the right. baby boomer generation. So, yeah, and who knows what immigration stuff is. Yeah. I mean, that's going to supply or to fill into supply. I mean, there's so much stuff. I think most of the factors contribute to more supply. Um then right I I I think personally, but yeah. All right, we've got CBD. Yeah, housing is such a giant question mark. We've got two minutes, one minute really. I want to hit two things. First of all, Netflix, at least in my area, finally cracking down on password sharing. I haven't watched Netflix in a while. I got to tell you, my first reaction was okay, I guess I'll just go watch HBO. But this feels like one of those things where everyone's outraged about it. Everyone says, that's, you know, that's bullshit. I'm going to boycott. And it's ultimately revenue accretive. I think dude, yeah, they are so smart on their timing because now all the juice has kind of been squeezed on basically sucking the air oxygen out of the room. 
And now they're going to try to make as much money as possible. And I mean, they're just so much better than everyone else. It was, it was viral marketing. It was free. I mean, you could, you were letting people watch for free essentially by mooching the passwords off of family members. Last one I want to talk about too, since we have a minute, we were wrong about Bud Light. Remember we said whenever oh, yeah. there's like political controversy, fade it. <laughs> yeah. This one took hold. Wow. It's lost its top spot as the best selling beer in the US, I believe replaced by Modelo Especial. Vamos. So uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh I'm surprised it had that big of an effect, honestly. Yeah, I think it was. And here's what I was trying to think about, because typically those boycotts turn into nothing burgers. And I think that's kind of the base rate or whatever you want to describe it. I know base rate's a little bit too intellectual for that, but whatever, right? You kind of, that's the rule of thumb is the boycotts don't work as much as people think, and it's overhyped. I think in this case, it's really because unlike a lot of the other boycotts, these are ones where... One, you're you're consuming this and it's in your hands. So it's a visual thing. And when you're consuming this, you're with your friends. And a lot of times with your friends, you might have the same political views. So I think it was one of those where kind of, it, it was really hard, right? Don't want to be actually, that guy. If you're in that. shows up apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want to show up with Bud Light. I think the other part here is maybe that people stopped drinking Bud Light and figured out, oh, there's some other reasons to boycott it, which is there's better alternatives out That's there. That's right. And they cost but, the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah whatever All it's right. uh it's a minute over one, yeah we are one minute over i know ryan said that but we can go as long as we want so it is our show but yes we wanted to keep this to an hour or around there this has been the investing power hour uh you can find it either on youtube spotify wherever you get your podcast show is out thursdays on youtube and then sunday wherever you get your podcast in audio format we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in and for all the great questions. We'll see you next time.